0: Welcome to the Unexpected Points Podcast. This is the Super Bowl review edition. The Rams beat the Bengals. What does it mean for both teams going forward? The landscape of the NFL, Matthew Stafford Hall of Fame, potentially, and Sean McVay, his ranking amongst the coaches in the NFL. All that and more on this edition of the Unexpected Points Podcast. Okay, 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 everybody. We have gotten through Super Bowl Sunday, gotten through the season. I thought it was a very appropriate game based upon what we had seen this season, this postseason. No truly great offensive teams this year, and we did not have a truly great offensive performance in the Super Bowl. We had some great defensive performances. We had some great individual offensive performances mostly on the Rams side of the ball. But it encapsulated a close game which we saw a lot during the playoffs in particular that wouldn't necessarily fall into the bucket of the best played game from an offensive execution and game planning standpoint. And that's what we got our results. I am happy with the results. I try to be as unbiased as possible in my assessment of what's going on, but let me tell you, the dash, you should say, maybe a little bit more than a dash, maybe like a scoop of skepticism that I had about the Bengals going into the playoffs after each subsequent playoff win when my numbers did not show them being a dominant team in any of those games. Of course, they only won by a few points, but my numbers showed them probably not even being the best team in those games, at least if we look at strictly offense and defense and not special teams where they outperformed. You know, if they would have won this game, and it was very close. I mean, we saw the game, but again, there's a holding, a somewhat questionable holding penalty on third and goal. If that is not called and the Rams don't convert that fourth down, the game is probably pretty close to over in that circumstance if they're able to march down the field at the very end convert that fourth down and score a touchdown there the game is over there are a lot of ways this could have gone to the Bengals and if it did I think the underplayed part of this analysis coming out of this game and not that he wasn't getting a lot of grief during the game Sean McVay was getting a lot of grief during the game but to me This would have been a near catastrophic coaching failure by Sean McVay in this game if they lost, if the Rams lost this game. And the reason I say it in those somewhat hyperbolic terms of how big of a failure it would have been is that the way things played out in this game – We're not just being results-oriented to say the Rams lost about 0.7 expected points on every single design run in this game. They had a success rate of 19%. These are bottom fifth percentile type of outcomes. And then they passed the ball well. And then on the flip side, we look what happened, and the Bengals had, had more problems passing the ball because of the intense pressure on Joe Burrow and ran the ball a little bit better. Now, we still wanted the Bengals to run it less often than they did, but we really wanted the Rams to run it less often than they did. So far in this playoffs, Stafford had added about 20-something points in EPA throwing the ball, and then they had lost about that same amount for the Rams running the ball and how poorly they ran it. So, This was telegraphed coming into this game. We all knew this was going to happen. Yet we saw over and over and over again, Sean McVay choosing to run the ball on first and 10, choosing to run the ball on second and long, failing to do so. Every single time they ran the ball on second or third down, they were unsuccessful. They do not have positive EPA on any single play. They had positive expected points added on a third of the first down and 10 runs, which I was kind of surprised they were actually that high. Um. But again, they were over 50% as far as their success rate passing the ball underneath all these different circumstances. Matthew Stafford was pressured one time in the second half on 22 dropbacks, despite the fact that the Bengals knew he was going to pass it a lot, especially on that last drive. Everything played out the way that we thought, the trenches. The the Rams had the number one pass-blocking grade as a team this season. Stafford had one of the best sack rates, not taking sacks this season. Everything played out that way. Now, If you want to say this was a little bit of a hedge how they were running things because of the fact that Robert Woods was out, uh, Tyler Higbee was out, Odell Beckham got injured, they didn't have a lot of confidence in the rest of the pass catchers, maybe. But still, it was just a poor, poor, poor decision by McVay not to lean further and further into the pass. We look at the adjusted numbers here for passing versus expectation and that accounts for down distance score all that sort of stuff in this game if we look at that number for this game the rams were one percent over expectation the Bengals were almost ten percent over expectation so the Bengals leaned into it more despite the structural problems they had with passing the ball here the rams did not and to only be one two percent above expectation, knowing what we knew going into this game, seeing how things are playing out during this game. I mean, just absolutely poor, poor, poor coaching by McVeigh. Now, he did go for it on fourth and one on his own 30 on that last drive. That was fine. I mean, it was a fairly easy call, honestly. But again, when McVeigh is going to McVeigh, you don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, he does an excellent job, obviously, scheming things up. Enabling Cooper Cup to get open for eight catches, 90-something yards, and two touchdowns, despite the fact that they have no one else to throw to. He obviously has a good rapport with Matthew Stafford. He obviously diagrams things well to get that protection that we're talking about for, for Matthew Stafford. Uh, again, 12% pressure rate for Matthew Stafford versus 42% for Joe Burrow. And fast pressure rate, so pressures or quick pressures that come in fewer than 2.5 seconds, 8% of the time for that happened to Matthew Stafford versus 33% of the time for Joe Burrow. Uh, Joe Burrow was under attack in this one. So he, he does, he does that all so well, and it would just be so easy. I know you're taking on a little bit more risk. I know things could go wrong, but every single time you were running the ball, the Rams are running the ball. And it's not that you should never run the ball. But again, if you're going to say we're going to be right in line with expectation, knowing the structural advantages you have passing the ball, every single time you're doing that, you make it less likely you're going to convert a first down and you're going to score points. And that's what it's about in this game. It's about scoring points on the possessions that you have. I've thought more about how to try to frame things to get people to jump on board, you know, to come join us on team numbers, team analytics, team nerd over here. How can we frame these things? And when it comes to fourth down decisions, I think a good way of framing things is to say, if you don't convert, it's a turnover on downs. If you punt, it's a turnover plus field position. You are still getting rid of the ball. You're still giving up the possession. You're just gaining field position with that turnover. It's like the the, the quote unquote arm punt. Not that big of a difference between a 40 yard arm punt and a 40-yard punt punt. It's a turnover. They're both turnovers in a way. They're both giving up possessions. You don't get that possession back. You get one possession for every single possession your opponent has. There's no way to manipulate that dynamic, regardless of what field position may be. So I think that's a good way to try to get some coaches interested in going for it more often is to say, you're stealing possessions, and the alternative, the cost, the opportunity cost, is punting the ball away, which is, in fact, a turnover. You are literally turning the ball over to the other team on purpose. Now, when it comes to running the ball in these situations and doing it too often, I'm starting to think maybe that turnover analogy is apt here. Every single time the Rams were running the ball, gaining one yard, gaining two yards, gaining three yards, being unsuccessful over and over and over again, they're taking points off the board. And they're taking those points off the board because they're more likely to turn the ball back over to the other team rather than score. Each one of these running plays was almost a mini turnover. You know, it's not binary. A fumble and an interception are are not just in a wholly different category from every other play. If we look at things on an expected points basis, you know, a fumble, a turnover, we can say, hey, those plays are minus three, minus four expected points, depending upon when they're happening, minus five, if there's a big run back or something like that. Each one of these running plays, you're losing a point. You're losing a point and a half sometimes. And what you're expected to do, they're little mini turnovers. It's a partial impact similar to a turnover. And that's how you have to start thinking about taking advantage of things. And I think you know, McVay, congratulations, you won. Maybe you'll be up in the booth and you can tell everyone on a week-by-week basis how the coaches should be taking the points here. But we have to start looking at this a little bit more. and I think being a little bit more critical just because it's so obvious of a mistake. You don't need to go 95% of the time passing the ball. But to only be passing it two-thirds of the time in this, in this situation, it should easily be up in the 75% sort of range, if not 80% with such an advantage in this game. So that would be my overarching first point, which I think is going to go against the narrative of what's going on. I'll probably get some Rams fans mad at me because of that, but you know I'm going to give you a lot of credit where credit is due for the Rams, and that is the players came to play in this game. You have a top-heavy team when it comes to the Rams. When we look at the players, not only contract-wise, but let's look at player accolades for this season. You know, Cooper Cup. 50 of 50, all-pro votes, first-team all-pro. Aaron Donald, 50 of 50, all-pro voters, voted for him, first-team all-pro. Jalen Ramsey, 32 of 50, not bad, uh, for the cornerback votes, first-team all-pro. Those guys came to play, and I know that Jalen Ramsey, you could point to him as having made some mistakes, but I think the problem when it comes to Guys like Ramsey, who can be out on an island like that, is the plays that he got beat on. The Jamar Chase long one-handed catch, the T. Higgins 75-yard touchdown, which included a pretty gratuitous grab of the face mask for Jalen Ramsey. And then there was a bigger play on that final drive where he took a poor angle and Chase, Chase scored on that. You know, you have this dynamic where if you're a cornerback, you're most likely to be noticed if you're someone like Jalen Ramsey, who's moving around and who the defense can choose to work around. You're, you're going to get noticed on plays where you get burnt and you're not going to have help a lot of the time on these plays. So I do think that when the Bengals had such a poor overall offensive performance, you can't just ignore Ramsey's impact in allowing the coverage to do its thing the rest of the time. Um despite the fact that he got burnt a few times there. And obviously he wasn't the best player in the game. Aaron Donald, I believe, was the best player in the game. I believe should have been the MVP of the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, the voting goes in with about two minutes to remain in the game. And that's why Cooper Cup, having scored that final second touchdown of his, registered with voters before the final drive and the pressure from Donald and hit that led to Burroughs' inability to complete that fourth down, but Donald, you know, two sacks, eight pressures, was a force there, often was being double-teamed. And great defensive adjustments here. Now, again, there's so so much focus on McVay, right? But if we're going to say what was going on on the other side of the ball, what was going on with Raheem Morris and this defense? That defense. That defense is bringing all the pressure. It wasn't just the individual players. Now, Von Miller's playing out. You know, I'm taking an L on that because I thought Von Miller may have been in decline a little bit. Taking an L there. Von Miller was balling out. Aaron Donald was balling out. Of course, those other guys. But Raheem Morris, great adjustment in the second half, bringing someone into, uh, across from the center, simulating some pressure there, taking some of the ability for the, Bengals offensive line to help on Aaron Donald there, getting one-on-ones as often as possible. And that just wreaked havoc on Burrow in the second half, 12 pressures in the second half on 22 dropbacks. And also, I'll say for Morris, again, it's making adjustments, leaning into your strengths there for what they're doing on defense, not getting impatient and bringing a lot of blitzes because we've seen what Burrow has been able to do against pressure. I mean, when he's not getting sacked, when he's been able to doing his pressure, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. We saw what he was able to do scrambling the ball, only one scramble. And it was an important scramble. He did get a fourth down conversion on a scramble this time. Wasn't scrambling here because again, the Rams were rarely, rarely bringing extra guys. Let me, let me bring up the numbers here. So they were blitzing on 20% of the time they were blitzing. And even a lot of the time there, they had five there, they drop someone into coverage and do a simulated type of pressure. They had eyes on Joe Burrow a lot. He was, so he wasn't able to scramble or get out of the pocket. Excellent, excellent game plan. Not enough being said about what Raheem Morris and that defense was doing on the other side. And of course, Aaron Donald should have been your MVP in this game. Before I get on to a little bit more analysis on the ramifications Going forward to next week, uh, not sorry, next week. There's no next week, luckily. Uh, going forward to next season for everything that's going on here, how we're viewing the different players. Let me just quickly tell everyone: last day here, twenty five percent off any subscription with Super Twenty Five promo code. Super Twenty Five promo code, get twenty five percent off everything from PFF, uh, Green Line stuff that you're going to be able to take advantage of next year. You can go look through all of that information we have there. We have all the draft and free agency content. Everything's available for you. 25% off super 25 code. And also we want to talk about Western and Southern while you focus on your roster moves. Western Southern helps advance your money moves, buying a first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance investments and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernandsouthern.com slash PFF. Okay, let's talk about going forward because I started to look at Stafford. And it's a little bit surprising that he did not maybe even leapfrog Cooper Cup for MVP in this game. Three touchdown passes, two interceptions. One of them was a drop that turned into an interception. Another one was a glorified arm punt. Game-winning drive at the end, not playing with many of his top receivers. Now, I think the downside for what you could say for him is he just wasn't – there wasn't a lot of pressure. So he wasn't doing anything miraculous necessarily as far as avoiding pressure despite the fact that we saw the no-look pass. If you haven't seen the no-look pass, just go ahead and go up to your Twitter bot and find that everywhere. He had no-look passes. He had other things he was doing. He stepped up. He did well. He was the number one quarterback this season in EPA per play. So he's established himself there. And if this is a new plateau for him going forward, there is legitimate Hall of Fame type of consideration here. I've always pushed back against Stanford, Hall of Fame consideration, not just because the lack of playoff success, because I'm not a huge playoff success type of person. I like to look at the larger samples to try to figure out what's going on with guys. But of course, it matters more. So he had the lack of playoff success before. Now he's got a Super Bowl run and a Super Bowl trophy. It wasn't just that. It was that. The case for him was largely based on counting stats and these gross, in a good way, gross uh, numbers that he's accumulated throughout his career as far as yards, touchdowns, and things like that are concerned. The thing he never really had, though, is he never had great efficiency. And if you look at this season, this is one of the best seasons that he's had in terms of efficiency. Obviously, he's never been number one in EPA rank before. So that is a big notch for, for, for me, for him to say that. Now, he was seventh in grading, so he wasn't he didn't make that top five sort of thing. But for me, it's more about anything else. Is How often are you getting in the top 10? Are you getting in the top five of quarterbacks in a particular year? that helps give me a better clue of what your level is that you're playing at. Now Stafford doesn't have any all-pro selections, anything like that, but you know Ben Roethlisberger doesn't have any all-pro all selections. But the problem is when you look at other seasons from Stafford He's never really had that many other strong seasons. He got in the top 10 in grading and in EPA in 2016. 2019, he was in the top 10 for both of those categories, but he only played half a season. And then you got to go back to 2013, where he was seventh in his grade ranking. And 2011, his third season in the league, he was in the top 10 in both grading and EPA. So he's had a few seasons there. But when you put up his numbers versus some others you start to get a little bit more of a framing that makes you understand why his case could have some difficulty without another big playoff run which he has plenty of time to potentially do. So if we look at I'm going to I'm going to stretch it out a little more. I'm going to say top 10 finishes where you get a point for each time you're top 10 in PFF grade, you get a point in in the system that I'm talking about each time your EPA per play is in the top ten, so you can get two points in one season if you're in the top ten for both of these. If you look through people's careers, as much as Big Ben fell off a cliff at the end of his career, he had the super two Super Bowl trophies, and I think some people underplay how efficient he was early in his career. He has 21 of those from 2006 until now because that's the time frame that I have grading data for. We don't we didn't grade anyone before that, so he has 21 different times when you if you if you can get you can get two in one season. Remember. Uh, Philip rivers, 20, Matt Ryan, 17, Ryan, another guy where I don't think he's going to get into the hall of fame. Doesn't have that super bowl ring. Went to the super bowl. Doesn't have an MVP though. And again, 17 times this has happened. He's been in the top 10 a lot more than some people may suspect. Russell Wilson. we going to probably get in the hall of fame. couple, you know, has a super bowl trophy, zero MVP votes. So as uh, well documented, he is 14 for him. Tony Romo, 12 for him. Tony Romo's a very under-the-radar type of guy for being very efficient in limited seasons that he ended up playing uh, in the NFL. Stafford, 8. So in Stafford's entire career into then, he has 8 instances, and again, you can get 2-in-1 season, of being in the top 10 of these different categories. Versus Big Ben and Rivers are at 20. 21 matt ryan's at 17 all these guys are more than double what he has done so he could continue to accumulate those and you know if he gets another super bowl i think he'd probably be a lot to to get in but you know he's better than someone like eli manning who only a six and eli manning may get in because of the dual super bowls but Stafford's definitely on a second tier below the big ben philip rivers who may not get in because of playoff success matt ryan who may not get in because of playoff success he's definitely in a different tier than those guys unless he truly steps it up for the rest of his career going forward, which could happen. Um, So I think that's kind of the proper framing to think about where Stafford falls next to these guys here. He could get there. Very, very helpful what happened this particular year and the Super Bowl. But when we're looking at efficiency, which again is the most important part, I mean, look at MVP voting. Uh, I think it's 10 of the last 11 MVPs, quarterback MVPs were number 1 in EPA per play during that particular season. During that regular season. Now, I, I know I say Stafford was number 1 of EPA per play this year, but I'm counting the playoffs for that. For just the regular season, Aaron Rodgers was was number 1 there. So, a couple more years like we saw this year, he's in he's in the mix without it. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for him. Let's talk about Joe Burrow. And Burrow, this was a particular game where I knew that the sacks were going to be the biggest issue with him. You know, sacks are, quote unquote, a quarterback stat. that's not going to get a lot of love after this game here where Joe Burrow had quick pressures. Pressures in fewer than 2.5 seconds were coming 33% of the time, which is one of the toughest games that we've seen. It's the third highest quick pressure rate we've seen in the Super Bowl. But again, when we look at one of these games where there was a higher quick pressure rate, was Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks in 2013. When you look at some of the difference here is Manning took one sack on 50 dropbacks in that game. Burrow took seven sacks. And Burrow was avoiding sacks better in the first half, especially the first quarter, because he was getting rid of the ball quickly. And I know that it's going to affect your game a lot and your ability to make big plays when you get rid of the ball quickly. But it, there there's a there's a push and pull between what you're going to do there. And the real problem of what we saw for this Bengals passing attack here is that even when Burrow was not getting sacked, whether it be the pressure or just the general fact that the Rams were doing a good job having their defense stay back and not allow the big plays because it was a big play offense that the Bengals needed. I'm not sure which one of those is the most important factor there, but even when they stood back, on passes that Joe Burrow was making where he was not sacked, he only had one EPA that he accumulated in 34 drop, 34 pass attempts, right? One EPA. Because of the fact that there were so many incompletions that were part of that. No interceptions, but so many incompletions. And if you think about it, that T. Higgins 75-yard touchdown, which was a grab of the face mask. And probably shouldn't have counted. That alone was 5.5 EPA. So if you negate that, whether that's fair or not, I'm not sure. But if you negate that, then we're talking about a game where there was actually negative play overall, even without the seven sacks, which were massively negative in, in this game. And you know, Joe Burrow, I've been a little bit lower on him than some others because of the sack problems. It's really going to be the key. What's going to happen? The offensive line was horrible in this game. I feel like this game, him taking seven sacks was less his fault in a way than the Titans game where he took nine sacks. Took even more sacks. So part of that is mitigated. Part of that is not his fault. Part of that is the fact that the Bengals offensive line was poor and the pressure was poor. But even if you look at trends where you have this poor of a, of a grade for your offensive line this quick of pressure seven sacks is still more than you would have expected so some of that has to be on burrow it's not that he has to you know make a huge play rather than take a sack but he has to mitigate some of that again peyton manning where he was getting at a higher quick pressure rate in the super bowl he only took one sack um patrick mahomes where he was under siege in the super bowl against the the buccaneers he didn't take any sacks until i think near the end of the third quarter in that game So there are ways to mitigate it. It's not that you're necessarily going to be successful. It's not that you have a great passing attack when you're underneath pressure like that, but you have to mitigate it somewhat. So that's gonna be the question for him um, because they're going to obviously bring in offensive linemen around him. Is it going to be enough to take him to that next level? It will be interesting to see. I reran this morning, my numbers for quarterback evaluation rankings of career and I don't want to get too much into the nerd shit here on how I calculate it, but it's called Bayesian updating. And Bayesian analysis is a fancy way of saying we have an opinion, a prior about what someone is. In the course of a quarterback, it's based upon their draft position, and then that gets updated. So we're updating that. So we have we have a, a thought about someone. We have information, evidence that we get through our grading and through the expected points added per play. We update that. Then we have a new opinion on what we think is our best guess for who this player is going forward. And then more evidence comes in. And then we update it. And then we update it. And then we update it. And by doing this, the more evidence we get, the more confident we become in our estimation. If someone has... If someone's averaging, let's say, half an EPA per dropback for one game versus a quarter of an EPA per dropback for 30 games, well, we're going to think that quarterback who's been consistently playing well for 30 games, even at half the level of the other quarterback for one game, we're going to think that quarterback has been doing it for a much longer period of time. When we're updating using this system, that's going to have a much better projection for what we think about that quarterback than the one who's only had one game. So it's a way to incorporate... Opinions based upon draft position, opinions based upon evidence, and weighted for how much evidence that we have. So I updated all of this here for quarterbacks in the NFL to get rankings that I'm putting together, combining 50-50 grades and expected points added. So the quarterback rankings that we have here, and again, I'm going to put Stafford and Burrow into the mix here so you get an idea. Um, but it's going to look at everyone's entire career. So I think it's going to be important, especially when we're talking about Josh Allen. So people are going to be throwing up their arms on how ridiculous it is for Allen. But remember, he had a couple of poor seasons. Now, I discount those poor seasons. I would call decay those earlier results so they're not worth as much as the more recent results. But we don't ignore them. Um, Okay, so number one, it's a virtual tie between Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. And... This is surprising here because Patrick Mahomes used to be pretty far out in front, despite the fact that in this sample, going back to 2006, he has 3,100 dropbacks. Aaron Rodgers has almost 9,000 dropbacks. So not exactly one-to-one there for who has the most. But still, Mahomes is so far ahead in expected points added. He's been top five or more like top three Every year of his career, that he's way ahead in that category. But his grading has been poor. And this is why I was a little surprised to see this. I didn't realize exactly how much his recent poor grading has been dragging him down. He was 11th in his grading this season after having been second in 2018, third in 2019, fourth in 2020, going all the way through. The playoffs in each one of these categories, 11th this season. So that's a big, big drop. And because of that big, big drop, and again, it gets more weighting because it is the most recent outcome. Because of that big, big drop, his grading score is below Rodgers, is below below Tom Brady, you know, RIP. He's no longer here. Uh, It's below Russell Wilson. Wilson still has been grading pretty well, surprisingly. Um, And then he falls in after that. So that's why he's kind of in this tie situation with Rodgers here. I think grading underweights Mahomes' talent, he's number one for me. Obviously, has the age advantage over Rodgers. But, you know, EPA could be overvaluing him based upon that system and the and the players that he has. So those two guys are right up at the top. That's why it's so weird to me that the Green Bay Packers fans want to send Rodgers out of town, where at least according to my numbers, ignoring potential for age decline the next season, there's no reason to believe that Aaron Rodgers will not compete for being an MVP type of quarterback again next season. So to send an MVP, a a back-to-back MVP quarterback packing is kind of insane. So anyway, so those two guys are at the top, pretty well separated with, well, Tom Brady would be next, but Tom Brady's, you know, I'm taking him out of the calculation here. And then the next guy we have here, shockingly, is Russell Wilson. Now, I think Wilson's reputation has taken a beating based upon what we've seen over the last season and a half. And he was bad. His grading rank was 16th. His EPA rank was 19th this last season. So really, really, really poor. But the thing is, he had built up this large sample that I'm talking about that comes into play here. 6,500 dropbacks in his career. And the grading has been really, really good. I mean, it's funny because the EPA ranking... He's had a couple of times where he's been sixth in 2019 and 2018 in EPA. Then he's in the teens again. And then you go back and he has some, he has actually stronger EPA early in his career where he wasn't grading as well. He has once where he's third. he has a couple of other times where he's six, but the grading for Wilson is just incredible. And remember he was, he was one of the top guys before the finger injury this season where he kind of fell off a cliff after that. But going back to 2020, I mean, he was sixth in grading in 2020, despite falling off a cliff at the second half of the season. He was first the year before, sixth, ninth, sixth, sixth, fourth, second. He has all these really, really top numbers there. So that's what puts him in there ever so slightly above some of these other guys. And again, there's no aging component to this. So the next guy, Matt Ryan being in there, you know, put an aging component in there. We're going to, it's fair to lower him a little bit in here. But again, when I talked about earlier the Matt Ryan had these 18 different instances of either being top 10 in EPA or top 10 in grading during his career, he has, you know, over 9,000 dropbacks of pretty high level play, more dropbacks than Aaron Rodgers. So because of that, despite poor results recently, he's still up that high. It's Bayesian updating. is giving credit to more of a sample. Now, next is Joe is, um, I almost said Joe Burrow. Next is Justin Herbert and then Joe Burrow. So that's what some people are going to complain about. Herbert is much better as far as his EPA ranking is concerned. And that's the thing for Burrow that makes me a little bit concerned. Burrow's grading has been great, but his ranking in EPA amongst all these different guys is more like 12th, even though his grading is six and he comes in seventh overall. Uh, Again, I'm counting Tom Brady in there for these, for these rankings that I'm talking about. So Herbert, then Burrow, then Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen are almost tied. Again, I would put Allen above Jackson. I would decay the old results that were poor for Allen in his first two seasons, even more than those for, for Jackson. But that's where Allen's going to be. He's quite a bit lower. I would have him above some of these other guys, but I do think it's interesting. It's an interesting thought exercise to say Justin Herbert versus Josh Allen. What is better only having good to great performance for Justin Herbert in two seasons, a very high volume play with poor blocking, honestly, not great offensive line, pretty good receivers, pretty good talent around him, or Josh Allen didn't have much talent around him, poor performance for two seasons, then better performance than what we saw from Herbert in each of the last two seasons. So it's a better to have... A 50-50 mix of poor and elite play, or a hundred percent mix of good-great play. I think I prefer the, the the poor elite play, but according to the numbers, at least this year, it leans towards your Herbert and others. And then the rest of the guys that we have on here, Jack Prescott and then Matthew Stafford, eventually again, Stafford probably could go a bit higher because of. The switch in teams now being at a new plateau, then Kirk Cousins, Kyler Murray, and so on. Ryan Tannehill eventually going, going down there. So Burrow is in this seventh sort of range, and I think he probably has one of the larger uh, dichotomies that could happen in his career here, depending upon whether he can clean up that efficiency and expected points added, which is largely being dragged down by Sachs. Really, really interested to see what he can do there because, again, Russell Wilson is kind of similar-ish where his EPA is much lower generally than his grading, and that is because he takes those sacks over and over again. Is that something Burl can clean up? Because if he can't clean it up, I have trouble seeing him going above uh, Justin Herbert there. Now, before I get into topics on looking forward to next season from an NFC AFC standpoint. We're talk about DraftKings because I'm also going to talk about some of the Super Bowl odds for next year that are already coming out. And this is official sports betting partner of the Super Bowl that you just watched. We're live in New York now. Draft, go ahead and download the Sportsbook app. Use promo code PFF at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. Good that we just watched that, so maybe I should take that out. Uh, 21 or over, see DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER. Download the Sportsbook app. Use promo code PFF. And lastly, we're going to talk about Manscaped here. This is V-Day. It's time to join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped grooming. 4 million seems like a lot, but maybe there actually are that many. This V-Day which is today, so I hope you're going to get this before it happens, is go ahead and use promo code PFF, 20% off, and free shipping. That's right. Use promo code PFF, get 20% off, and free shipping. Join Cupid and shoot your arrow with Manscaped this Valentine's Day. Okay, so looking forward to next year. Already looking forward, I know. But I thought it was interesting because I wasn't sure how the Bengals were going to be viewed going forward. So let's look at some early, early Super Bowl odds here: Buffalo and Kansas City plus seven fifty apiece; the Rams plus eleven hundred. I guess we'll see what happens with McVay retiring, Aaron Donald retiring, potentially all that stuff happening. I don't think any of it's going to happen, but probably doesn't look like it's priced in here either. Cincinnati Bengals next, plus 1,200. I am surprised by that. Now, the Cowboys are also plus 1,200. The Broncos, 1,600. Obviously, there's Aaron Rodgers priced into there because the Packers are also plus 1,600. The Packers should be above, way above the Bengals, probably pretty close to the Rams if Rodgers goes back to Green Bay. I think there's some value there. I know that Andrew Brandt, if you follow him on Twitter, former executive with the Packers, he seems to believe that Rodgers is going to leave. Eh. I think that they've patched things up over there and Rodgers would be borderline insane to leave being that he's in a place legacy wise, where the NFC is compromised. As far as the talent there, he just went back to back MVPs. He has a front office who seems like they're willing to do anything he wants going forward. So I'd be a little bit surprised by that. Uh, I see the 49ers plus 1600 with Trey Lance here. The Ravens 2000, Cardinals 2000, Tennessee Titans 2200, New England Patriots 2200, Buccaneers 2500, Chargers 2500. I like Chargers. I like the Chargers. Chargers to me are very close to a few pieces, get that defense turned around, see if they can stay healthy, bolster the offensive line, get Herbert a little bit more downfield talent. And again, I think Herbert is, you know, a better quarterback than teams above him here. I know it's hard in the division, though. The division sucks. Um, but he's a better quarterback than, in my opinion, Joe Burrow is above here. Um, Dak Prescott, who's above here. Trey Lance, uh, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Ryan Tannehill, all these guys. Yeah, they're all the way down at twenty five hundred. So that would be something I would take a look at. Colts twenty five hundred, Browns three thousand. I kind of like the Browns. I mean, I know they're a little bit of a mess, but to me, I think about them versus the Bengals is maybe more of a coin flip, just because they have more of these needs already filled outside of the quarterback position. And I mean, Baker was a top ten type of guy in EPA and grading last year. (laughs) I mean, it's not under it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could get back there. So that would be another team I'd be interested in. And then the Seahawks at plus 4,000. We'll see. If Russ comes back, that's another team I could get someone interested in going forward. Okay, the last segment that I want to hit here. Somewhat quickly, and I you know, I hedged a little bit whether I really wanted to do something on this or not, but this is an analytics podcast. This is podcast at least mentions some betting stuff, although I'm pretty upfront about the fact that All of my stuff is for entertainment purposes only. I'm not a tout. I'm not charging for services. I'm not claiming irrationally large win rates, anything like that. But I thought that I should at least discuss some of the takeaways from an article that came out. I don't know when it came out. Late last week sometime. Where it's a New Yorker article by Danny Funt called A Gambling Sharp Breaks Into the NFL. And the subhead is Warren Sharp Says He's the Only Analyst... In the betting space, in quotes, who works with NFL teams, do those dual roles constitute a conflict of interest? Now, I thought it was interesting that this kind of like dual roles thing came up and the conflict of interest there. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's a conflict of interest. Uh, At the same time, you know, from what I know, and I don't know a ton, but from what I know for teams that he's worked with, I mean, he's not getting any information from these guys. From these guys to make that would be useful in his betting, and I think that's they all know that. Um, so I'm not really interested in that side of things. I'm more interested in Warren's ascent and what it says about not just you know journalism a little bit and how we look at these things, but also generally how we can think about credible analysis. And I like Warren. I know Warren. I've met him before. Uh, I think he's a good guy. I think things are tough if you're, you know, if you're touting though, like things, things are, things are tough. It's very difficult to maintain an above the board, perfectly intellectually honest type of business if you're touting. I do think there are some people who have done it, but It's more like they've been in and out of touting. It's not their main thing. Uh, A friend of the pod, Rob Pozzola, who's on here last year, he'd done some touting before. He still talks about it a bit. Um, But I know that he does a lot of his own betting, and that's kind of his primary form of of income. And I think he's very intellectually honest. Another guy that some of you may have heard of, Preston Johnson, uh, Sports Cheetah on Twitter, And again, he's a guy who's been in that space, but he's, he's very intellectually honest. And he's someone to me where when I hear their analysis, I can kind of sniff out maybe better than some people who don't have as much of an analytical background. Not that I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm like a state at a holiday in express type of data scientist, as opposed to some of the PhD types like Eric Eager and others at PFF. But I can still smell out some of these things and, you know, you can figure out what's going on with those guys sometimes here. So what I think is interesting about this and what the article plays out in, again, Sharp's ascent to being someone who has 200 and I don't know how many thousand Twitter followers and someone who has worked for teams is that often people who are either reporting on this or even people within teams are not equipped with being able to figure out what is or what is not real, like top-notch type of analysis. It mentioned in the article that retired NFL executive Joe Banner was someone who takes a fee from Sharp and then introduces him to different teams. Now, of course, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the one team that's revealed in here is someone that Sharp has worked with is the Eagles. Joe Banner is friends with the owner, Jeff Lurie there, and you know worked for the Eagles back in the day. So it shouldn't be that big of a surprise there. But what I think was interesting here is when you think about the different levels that moved Warren up in his career, and this could be true of other people. Again, I don't want to focus too much on just like this is a, you know, saying something bad about Warren because I think it's just a bigger thing. But the things that propelled him forward were the statistical analysis about the Patriots and their high fumble rates. His findings were kind of republished and analyzed and looked into in the Wall Street Journal and Slate, which created this buzz around him, given him a much higher profile, probably led to Joe Banner, this and that. But when the claims were actually dug into by multiple different people, uh, including Michael Lopez, who's now the head of analytics at the NFL, tenured professor Greg Matthews at Leone University, Chicago, they looked into this and said, it's not that the analysis is totally bunk. Now, I think Matthews overstates it in this article because he's a little bit of a sharp sharp hater where, you know, I don't totally blame him, but I get what's going on here. But he says, you know, it was appallingly bad analysis and wouldn't fly in an intro stats class. I mean, that may have been a little bit overstating some of the mistakes there, but I think there were clear mistakes here. So when you at, when you talk to people like Lopez and Matthews, they can kind of sense that this is not – necessarily high level analysis. There are other unnamed NFL analytics people in here who have questions about the type of analysis, who mention mistakes that are made for even calculating things like success rate as part of this analysis. So I think this is just a bigger part of the fact that I think for journalists, for other people, for people making decisions, what we find most often is you have to trust sometimes more the analytical people that you're speaking to who have a better background into these sort of things, even if they aren't the best at touting themselves or getting a profile or things like that. And that's what I would say to people should be a little bit scared of going forward because even in this article, and I don't think that Warren has sent it out because he may see it as being, <clears throat> excuse me, some negatives in it. You know, it's not to the 13th paragraph of a 17 paragraph article that there's anything negative printed in here. Or possibly printed in here. And what I think was really interesting is one thing that was mentioned by data scientists who work for multiple teams is, and this is the key here. He says, if you don't have a technical background, it becomes very hard to spot these errors, these types of errors. So that's what I would say to some media people is to be a little bit more careful when you're looking at these things. Talk to some people a little bit more. And for people who were out there, you know, taking in the analysis... Try to find kind of trusted sources to think about this because um, otherwise it's a little bit easy to not be able to parse what's going on. And it's not that things can't be valuable and Warren's work can't be valuable, but the level of value. You know, when people say that – when he's saying in here he's the best analysis because he can combine these two different things. When an old Ringer article by Kevin Clark about the analytics revolution said that um, that Warren Sharp was – you know, one of the sharpest minds out there, perhaps the best mind. I mean, there's no one technical out there who thinks that. And no one technical out there thinks that I'm the best mind either. I mean, hopefully they think I'm a little bit better, but no one thinks that I'm necessarily the the best mind out there. So just to be careful about these sorts of things. And that's what I would say. Try to have your trusted sources for what you're looking for, for this analysis. And of course, rely upon quote unquote experts a little bit more Than touts because incentives lead to behaviors and to claims that we cannot necessarily get past. All right, that's my little spiel on an interesting article this week. Go and check it out at the New Yorker again, and check me out later in this week. I'm going to be talking to Marcel Louis Jacques over at the ESPN, the worldwide leader. He is covering the Miami Dolphins. I want to dig into. The Mike McDaniel hire, I got some issues. Mike McDaniel may be on notice for some things that he's been saying recently. I'm going to parse through some of that with him, what he expects from the team going forward, Tua, all that stuff later on this week. In the meantime, I appreciate everyone tuning in, and I will be talking at you then. Thanks so much, everybody. Rate and review the pod if you get the chance.